This is the Great Adaptations Podcast from the Glacier Trust. Hello, I'm Morgan Phillips, UK co-director of the Glacier Trust and your host for the Great Adaptations Podcast. Glacier Trust enables climate change adaptation in the remote mountain villages of Nepal. To do this, we work with fantastic NGO partners on projects that prevent landslides, secure water supplies, tackle insect pest infestations, and support farmers to transition to forms of agriculture that are not only more resilient to the growing impacts of climate change, but also part of a wider process of societal transformation that aims to strengthen democracy, improve health and education, and fight for racial, gender, and economic equality. Our project work follows strong ecological and social justice principles and doesn't separate adaptation off from the pressing need to regenerate nature, mitigate climate change, and transition the world away from an economic system that is failing Nepal and failing the world. In 2020, lockdown and unable to visit Nepal, I wrote a short book called Great Adaptations in the Shadow of a Climate Crisis. It was published in September 2021 by Arcbound and is available to buy via the Glacier Trust website, but you can also find it on all the good book-selling websites. This podcast series accompanies the book and features interviews with scientists, politicians, academics and campaigners. The aim of the book, the podcast and the wider Great Adaptations project is simple. We want to get more people talking and thinking about adaptation. Adaptation is already happening and we can only expect to see more of it and more of its evil twin, maladaptation. We want to shine a light on the great and not so great adaptations so that when people start designing and implementing their adaptation strategies, they look to adapt in ways that are socially just, compatible with mitigation efforts and part of a wider transformative process. The adaptations to climate change that are already happening need to be scrutinised and celebrated in equal measure. Great Adaptations does that, but conversations about adaptation can't exist in a vacuum. Context is everything. Welcome to episode four of the Great Adaptations podcast. This is an interview with Dr. Lisa Shipper. She's someone whose work I've followed really closely over the last few years, and it was great to spend an hour chatting with her. She's got such a depth of knowledge on adaptation and how adaptation intersects with development issues, justice issues and mitigation. Lisa is one of the most respected academics in this sector and is becoming an increasingly well-known and influential voice in the wider climate justice movement. She's co-editor of the journal Climate and Development. She sits on the editorial boards of two more journals, World Development Perspectives and Global Transitions Health. And she's associate editor of Mitigation and Adaptation Strategies for Global Change. Her work has taken her all over the world, including to Nepal. And she worked at Stockholm Environment Institute in Sweden and the Environment Change Institute at the University of Oxford. Lisa is also the coordinating lead author of Chapter 18 of the Working Group 2 contribution to the sixth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That report is going to be very important and very enlightening um, and I think will be a report that I think creates a few shockwaves 
um, in political and, and climate justice circles. It comes out on February the 28th, 2022. Lisa and I spoke via Zoom in December 2021, um, a few weeks after the COP26 UN Climate Summit. Um, we talked about what adaptation is, how Lisa got interested in it, how vital it is that the wider social, economic and environmental context is taken into consideration when designing and implementing adaptation strategies. And we also talked about the dangers of maladaptation, which Lisa is probably the leading expert on. Lisa explained the difference between incremental adaptation and transformative adaptation and what it's going to take to instigate the transformative variety. We also discussed the IPCC process, the focus of working group two and, and what's going to be in the chapter that, that Lisa is working on. And she was in the midst of, of um, what she called the, the final sprint on that work um, when I spoke to her. So I'm doubly appreciative that um, she gave me some time um, to to be interviewed for this podcast. Um, so I really hope you enjoy it. I'll be back at the end to reflect a little bit on the conversation. But for now, here's Dr. Lisa Shipper on the Great Adaptations podcast. Hi, Lisa. It's great to meet you. Um, thanks for um, your time this morning. And it's um, it's going to be really interesting to talk to you about your work in adaptation. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's good. It's good to see you. Um, so um, I want to have um, the Great Adaptations project that we're doing. Um, it's a book, obviously, and, and, the, and this podcast. And, you know, it's really all about getting people to have conversations about um, climate change adaptation specifically. Um, and how it fits into all the other agendas which people are, are working on, um, because it's it, it's never in a silo and it, and it shouldn't be in a silo. So um, I want to just, just talk to you about some of the research that you do and some of the work that you've been involved with the IPCC and, and kind of what you're up to over the next of the sort of coming months and years. Um, so I'll start just by asking you, um, you know, just to, just to give us a bit of an overview of what adaptation is, what climate change adaptation is, how you how you understand it. Yeah, absolutely. I think adaptation is basically the process of adjusting to the way that climate is changing, or also to the way that we expect climate to change. And but but what is it that adjusts? So it's it's all sorts of things. It's it's kind of things like infrastructure or or. Um, the, the way that we build houses, for example, to adapt to a warmer or colder or more wind or, or so on. Um, but also things like our attitudes and our behavior around sort of where can we go for holiday or what kind of food should we eat or what kind of food should we be eating? Uh, and, um, and I think, um, so, so that, those are sort of the extremes. And then also, of course, for many people whose livelihoods are really climate dependent or, or whose livelihoods whose are very entwined with the way the climate is they will need to adapt their livelihoods so that includes especially farmers who will need to think about well i might am i growing you know can i do, grow some other kind of crop that won't be so drought sensitive or or so on so it really is kind of it spans all sorts of things and i think it's important to note also that we often talk about adaptation as this thing that needs to happen and needs to be funded, but actually people are adapting every day as well, and it's not necessarily funded, and it's not necessarily so uh, kind of explicitly planned either. It's just sort of the way that people are adjusting spontaneously to the things that are happening around them. So um, on a formal way, we can say this is a field of study. It's a it's a, a, a an area of policy and planning, but it's also in many ways part of livelihood and life already um, so 
yeah so it's kind of a broad broad area yeah definitely I think it's certainly a kind of it can be a really ad hoc thing can't it and sometimes it can be something that you're just doing it and you're not even aware that it is an adaptation you might not have noticed that you're um using a, a stronger factor sun sun cream um on your holiday than you used to um it's there's there's all sorts isn't there going on um and when did you first become interested in in climate change and in, and in kind of adaptation specifically what was the kind of what what took you down this path well climate change was something that i became interested in when i was doing my undergraduate uh, in environmental science where I, because I spent a semester in Botswana, uh, I was sort of came across a very clear conflict between wildlife and uh, livestock. And this took me down a, a rather odd path of thinking about sort of, well, how do we, you know, how can we make more space for wildlife? And obviously as a naive young undergraduate, I was like, oh, we must kill all the livestock. Of course, it's ridiculous because it's a huge part of people's livelihoods and, and, and nutrition and so on. But it was just sort of this reaction. And that then I ended up reading an article in The New Scientist that talked about how if when um, through the uh, mad cow disease that was happening at mm -hmm. that time, lots of cows were being killed across the UK and so on. And that the methane emissions were going to go down. So it was sort of like mm. this odd, sort of this anti-cow attitude that led me into, um, oh, wow, well, by being anti-cow, we can also reduce methane emissions. And as I was writing my undergraduate thesis, the Kyoto Protocol was being negotiated. So it sort of, mm. it just became this, it, it was just sort of this natural thing, like, oh, okay, uh, yeah. And methane being such a, a powerful um, greenhouse gas, it was just no, it doesn't seem important. But then I ended up working at the climate change, the UN Framework Convention Secretariat, right after I finished my undergraduate, where I was exposed to kind of more the differences between the global south and the global north or annex one countries and non-annex one countries in yeah. terms of the way they could at that time in 1998 know mm -hmm. what greenhouse gas emissions they had. Um, and so we became interested in the equity issues and the differences. And then somebody just randomly said to me, oh, adaptation is actually the most important thing to think about if you're interested in this developed, developing country uh, kind of dichotomy. And that was it. Then I, for my master's, I looked at adaptation development. For my PhD, I looked at adaptation and development. And I haven't really looked, looked away <laughs> from it since then. So it's been a, a long, long adaptation journey. Um, and I should say also in the beginning, I think the reason that it was attractive is because there was almost nobody working on it. And it was definitely like sort of the forgotten little sister in the climate policy space. Um, now, obviously, it's not really the case, uh, but yeah, it's it's still probably it still deserves to be a little bit the little sister because we obviously need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions very much. Yeah. Uh, but it obviously also needs a lot of attention because we're not doing it very well. So we need to think about how can we improve the way that we do adaptation as well. Yeah, absolutely. So so nearly so over twenty years then you've been you've been working on it. That's, um, yeah, a long time. Yeah, and um, and it's interesting that you say that it, you've kind of experienced it becoming a little bit more at least mainstream, at least within the climate movement. Probably not within the the wider what we think of the mainstream. But um, does it? Do you, feel, do you feel like it's getting closer to kind of parity with mitigation or are we still quite far off that being the case? I mean, I think the biggest difference is that over the last 20 years, we haven't been able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions very well. So we obviously have evidence like climate change is on our doorstep, whereas when I started with it, climate change was something that was 
far in the well it seemed like it was in the future right i mean if you look at the convention the UN Framework Convention text, you see that they really don't put a lot of emphasis on adaptation because they thought that they would be able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions so much through the, the way they laid this out that it wouldn't be necessary to think about how to plan yeah. adaptation. And so they talk more about sort of the natural adaptation that exists in systems and human systems and ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And so the, the difference now is that we're like, oh, God, we really actually need to, first of all, we need to do adaptation because we're not, we don't have, um, we're not reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also we recognize now much more the limits to adaptation, even planned adaptation. So, um, or sorry, to the kind of inherent natural adaptation, also to the planned adaptation, um, which then kind of brings it back to mitigation. So ultimately it's still, it, it really is, it needs to be, I'm gonna say it's like the sidecar, you know, it has to be there, but on the other hand, the engine has to be the the mitigation has to be kind of what drives and takes us in that direction. Where do we where where does adaptation also need to go? I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think um I've kind of kind of I mean, I've been working on adaptation since 2016, I think really is when I really started to work on it. I think I was aware of it before, but definitely not in any sort of deep way. And um and it's sort of come to think of it as being um you know we need, we need to find green ways or kind of mitigate like climate sensitive climate smart ways of adapting just in the same ways that we need to have climate smart ways of eating and traveling and it's just a, it's just another thing that we have to, that we're doing and we have to try and do it in a green and socially just way as just in the same as everything else and i think that's that's what's been interesting about it for me as i've kind of got stuck into it a bit more um so the Glacier Trust, we work um, with partner NGOs in in Nepal, and we've, you know, we're quite a small charity, but we have two or three projects going on at the same time normally, um, and they're in kind of the foothill communities of, of the Himalayas. So, you know, very kind of communities which are some of the most vulnerable and some of the poorest in the world. Um, and we work sort of, our partner NGOs really work with the communities in in depth to kind of identify what's going on with you know how climate change is impacting on their lives and to come up with the adaptation strategies that are going on and, and kind of to, to co-design it with them and to co-implement it with them but um we're always always kind of thinking you know what are what are the sort of questions that um we should be asking our NGO partners should be asking the community should be asking when when they're kind of getting into that design phase and that implementation phase what, what are the kind of I guess generic questions that, that people need to bear in mind when they're when they're starting to kind of become conscious of the need to adapt. Well, I mean, I think there's a number of things, um, and luckily, I think there are a lot of um, sort of to some extent. I mean, I've also worked in in um, in Nepal and, and in the region there. Uh, I think through the history of kind of community um, forest management and other kinds of natural resource management, there are there's quite a lot of um, knowledge about the interconnected nature of these kinds of smaller scale projects, right? So that, that, that because I think that's one, the, one of the biggest things is thinking about, you know, it's not just about adapting to the impact of climate change, whatever that may be, more rain, less rain, change in, in kind of quantities of water available, but it's also about thinking in more holistically, like, well, how does this impact our livelihood choices? How does it have, what kind of medium or long-term consequences would these adaptation projects or actions have? Um, and I think that that is one of the, the, the big, <laughs> the biggest gaps that 
we see, I think, and I mean, this is sort of a bit of a hypothesis, but it's based on just sort of experience looking at different projects that we, what a lot of projects still continue to focus more on the impacts of climate change rather than see sort of the bigger, the bigger development picture, the bigger, and, and, and as a consequence, they don't see the root causes of vulnerability because they don't look outside the climate space. So they're not looking at maybe the gender inequalities or, the, or, or these other kinds of power relation issues, or in, in the case of Nepal, so maybe caste issues or that sort of thing. Like they're not necessarily looking beyond. And some of these things are really challenging to address. But if, if, if projects don't address, you know, really look at these structures, these sort of structures that either um, would maybe make power more equitably, um, distributed or prevented from being equitably distributed, then probably in all likelihood, these projects will have a very short life and or the outputs or outcomes of the project will have a very short life. Um, but also another thing that we worry about is whether they actually make people worse off because they don't take into account these local kind of contexts. And that uh, it could go as far as maladaptation, which is when actually make adaptation projects end up making people more vulnerable. And, um, and this can happen in lots of different kinds of ways. And so it might even be the case that you have people who are in another location who end up being more vulnerable. And especially if you're talking about in um, mountainous areas where people basically, you know, if one, one community upstream decides that we're gonna, okay, we need some kind of, we need to somehow keep some water for irrigation here from the streams that has implications for the people downstream and and um, and the ecosystems downstream as well. So, it, yeah, I think the, these are the kinds of things that we need to keep in mind. Um, and then, frankly, I mean, you know, is it is it are we talking about adaptation projects in places where what's really needed is much more kind of basic livelihood improvement, um, you know, where people the the adaptation sort of deficit is is significant because people are not adapted to their current climate but it's also that they're not really their development deficit is quite significant as well that their well-being isn't very high anyway and or or you know so i guess it's it's it is a little bit of a puzzle to try to figure out how, how do you best uh, adjust project but ultimately i think I guess the third dimension to it is to make sure that there's local engagement so that you have people who are in these places who are also helping uh, design the projects and, and through that co-design, hopefully what people want will also be, you know, the projects will look at these things that people want and the concerns that people have, um, but then also take this kind of broad perspective and say, okay, well, we might not call, you know, associate this with too much or too little water or, or even climate variability in other way. But could this also be an important factor that we need to take in mind for, for thinking about adaptation? So I guess those would be the three things that I would say need to happen. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, um, yeah the kind of understanding of the of this the kind of social and economic system within the, like the context around the kind of adaptation thing is is always so important and i think depending on the budget obviously for these projects um you can't tackle everything it's kind of yeah we, we, need, we need a better school we need a better hospital we need better roads and above. so i think it's i think one of the things which we've always tried to do with the projects is to have really good relationships with the local government but also the opposition of the government, because if it changes, um, it doesn't become sort of attached to one political party and then the other one just rejects it out of hand. Um, so there's always that going on. 
to, and how can we build this into the kind of the broader um, systems change, I guess, that's going on, which I guess is the difference. And actually probably worth asking you at this point about the kind of the difference between sort of incremental adaptation and the kind of more transformative adaptation, because I think those are terms that get banded around a bit, but it's, um, I'd be interested to hear what, how you understand those those two terms. Well, I mean, there are many different ways you can approach this. The kind of at the basic, it's the incremental is sort of the idea that you can make small changes and that that's sort of sufficient to address the the climate, the way that is changing and the way it's affecting uh, people's lives. The transformative adaptation refers to the need to really make enormous, like kind of. Um, revolutionaries, the word I like to use, change, like really rethinking things, and in particular institutions, who's in power, those are the kinds of things that really need to be, uh, I guess, not just rethought, but changed. And, and, um, and so the incremental is then from that perspective, more seems like we'll work with the, with the existing institutions and the existing power structures, but we'll still address things uh, so that, you know, we know that people need more, more water during these months, so we'll maybe try to provide some kind of um, water storage options for them yeah. or, or something else like that. And, and, um, but that doesn't, of course, get at the real problem, which is that there's not enough water and there's, you know, something, something people needing water. So, um, so I think, you know, the transformative adaptation would be like either you could say something very dramatic and it's not necessarily something that seems, I say, it can be something that appears kind of, both scary and negative initially, but it could be something like, um, you know, making people have to leave, like can't, can no longer live in that location or, or um, have to change their, their livelihoods or lifestyles completely and dramatically. So I think, and as you can imagine, those kinds of transformative changes are very, uh, are, are not the things that people really want to go for immediately because they're so, they're, they require so much adjustment psychologically as well as obviously physically and, and, and yeah, everything else economically. But the problem is that when we continue to operate with existing institutional structures or with sort of, um, it, we're probably just perpetuating the things that are driving vulnerability to climate change in the first place. So we're probably just sort of keeping, you know, this idea that those people should continue to live in this place with a water supplied or some kind of water structure that eventually it may not hold right so it, or maybe there be too many people or it's not really that it's not a forward thinking it's just sort of like a very um i would say kind of a, a more um, short-term thinking although i'm sure there are people who would see it, that incremental then eventually leads to transformational uh, so it's, yeah. it's an unresolved <laughs> it's certainly an unresolved discussion and if you want to get really academic about it you could kind of look at the different literatures around transitions and 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 sort of this small kind of shifts versus transformation but i think uh i think i guess the, the important thing to keep in mind is that transformation probably is it could be very uncomfortable in the beginning and then eventually lead to something better yeah but i don't you know we don't have um yeah, it, it's hard to know also when you, what, what it could also just kind of come out, out of nowhere mm -hmm. and suddenly there's a transformation. I mean, to some extent, the pandemic has provided a type of transformation. I think we're on the cusp of a transformation with it, but then it's, we're sort of brought back to what was before in many ways in many countries. So yeah, yeah. the change in that sense maybe was only more incremental, I guess you could say. 
Yeah, so I think yeah, there's often a, a like a shock can a shock to the system, like a, like a pandemic or you know a a sudden political uprising. You know they, these sorts of things are a war that they, they can they can lead to kind of a short term kind of you know a, a kind of calamity like that or or a sort of a sort of mini collapse event at a local level might be the trigger for right. You know we don't it's, it's this whole kind of you know build back better stuff isn't it and like, like the new normal and like right this is a this is a chance to shift to something different and we need to we need we needed to move to these different structures anyway so let's let's do it now while you know while things are a little bit turbulent and and the counter argument to that of course being like after you've been through such a traumatic experience the last thing you want to do is try and change anything else you kind of you cling on to the existing structures and you, and you might want to go back to them so it's um it's very difficult, isn't it? And I think a lot of it is involved in, you know, the transformation that we need to see happen in society and the economy kind of starts in our own hearts and minds, really, doesn't it? The transformation of, of values and beliefs and worldviews need to kind of, are also part of it. I kind of, it makes me think of um, Professor um, Karen O'Brien and yeah. her, her work and that stuff around, she talks about the personal sphere and the practical sphere and the political sphere and where the change happens. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting. And, and I think, um, It'd be good on the malad maladaptation stuff because I know I've, I think it was reading your stuff which already became more and more aware of it and kind of and kind of nervous about it I think as as a kind of I mean I'm a one step removed practitioner in adaptation in that I kind of I'm there as a kind of sounding board for the guys in Nepal who, who do the real work and do the, the real planning um I just raise try and raise the money but um they um I think one of the things which I think that as you become more conscious of the complexity of systems and the knock-on effects that you could have um, either in your own life and you could end up creating more vulnerability for yourself or that you could have these downstream effects on other people. Um, I do, you know, the one one thing which kind of strikes me is that um, if we get more, the more conscious we are of the potential of maladaptation, it can paralyze us a little bit as well in that we go, oh God, I better not, I better not even do anything and just in case, you know, just in case I have a bad effect because it's, it's hard to know. But how, how does... How does have you seen sort of that? How, how do we how do we overcome that kind of fear of maladaptation and just sort of accept that it might be a bit of a bumpy ride, but we've got to get started? Well, I mean, I would say I, I can I, I acknowledge that this could be an um, a way that you might interpret it. I I would say though that the the thing is we we know sort of that there are certain practices in planning in adaptation planning that are more likely to lead to maladaptive outcomes and that we can actually reduce those. We can, if we eliminate those, we're more likely to have something that actually has a, a better impact. The, what we lean on is the, the many decades of critique of, of development projects where actually over the course of this period, critical development scholars have been able to sort of influence big donors and, and development actors to make sure that they check more carefully about sort of the social and environmental consequences of their projects. That doesn't mean they're eliminated, but there has become much more awareness of the need to be kind of conscious of the what what is often called also sort of externalities or the kinds of things yeah. that, yeah, they're sort of like, oh, well, these are the costs in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, But I think especially when it comes to adaptation, one of the problems is that we aren't really sure what we're adapting to often. And so, you know, people, like I said, people aren't always adapted to the current climate. 
So then somebody comes in with a project and like, okay, it's going to get drier here according to these projections. And so we need to think about this. But sometimes they don't actually consider the climate information. They're like, they look more specifically at what's, or, or more carefully at the current climate and say, okay, what are, what are the problems that people have here? But actually those problems may not have such a, such come so much from climate change. It could very much come from the fact that their people are so extremely vulnerable to, to the lack of water or the too much water because of a lot of other problems and so i think you know for me that that's probably the number one way to avoid maladaptation is to look carefully at the drivers of vulnerability what what is it that people what, what's causing this and i think then you can eliminate a large part of the risk associated with you know or or risk for, of becoming or having projects that are maladaptive mm -hmm. uh, but but i think the challenge is that a lot of projects don't try to do that they're really just looking at the impacts of climate change and they don't consider sort of the bigger contextual issues uh and and so uh yeah so i mean i think i think there's some kind of lower hanging fruit that we can pick first to make sure that yeah. we avoid maladaptation in other cases, especially when it's sort of cross-border or if you're talking about conflict areas where people may not even want to be in dialogue with each other, mm -hmm. I think there is, there is a high risk of, of having kind of consequences on, on groups outside. Um, and further, I mean, we also know that, for instance, like a lot of coastal protection infrastructure has lots of examples of maladaptive coastal protection infrastructure, probably because the infrastructure locks people into kind of a solution that isn't flexible because it's sort of it's there it's built and it costs money and it's not easy to adjust but also because there it it, it often doesn't take into account or doesn't even know maybe even what the, the adverse consequences of, of the infrastructure might be on people further down the coast much further away and and nobody might even check because they think well you know here a project is here and then they might not really know that maybe, I don't know, it could be 35 kilometers for, or 50 over 100 maybe further down the coast. Actually, there's now more sediment deposit. There's a whole bunch of, of change in the way that the water is, is impacting those settlements. Uh, so, I mean, you know, so if we also look a little bit more broadly at uh, the project, but yeah, I think um, it, we have a lot of lessons. The problem is that knowing when we're kind of hitting maladaptation during a project is really, really difficult because it's it's almost only always, or sorry, it's almost only with hindsight that we can say, oh, oops, we screwed yeah. up here. So I think, yeah. and this is a big challenge for, for, I think a lot of donors are, are trying to understand how to better grapple with maladaptation, but don't really know, like, what are the tools available to check when it's happening? Yeah, I think you're definitely right. So I think it's, you know, getting people to to consider and to kind of, I guess, have you know, think systemically and, and to do that sort of systems thinking exercises to, to think, oh, what, what what happens if we do this and what happens if that happens and what happens after that to somebody else and think that that consideration of it is is important to to do and in, in design. Um, and then it's it's also caring as well. I think, you know, we can't be blind to the fact that there's, you know, there's businesses who are and countries and cities that are doing their adaptations now. They might not even be calling it an adaptation, but they're, they're they're doing it and they're doing it sort of in the shadows and it's not really being scrutinized and it and it isn't necessarily going to have great outcomes for for other people. It's um it might, you know, you know, in a very simple, simplistic sense, you know, to adapt, they might be, 
you know, burning a whole load of fossil fuels to be able to run an air conditioning unit to, to keep yeah. their freezers cool to get to to keep their market advantage as a supermarket for example um, and that that's just triggering more climate change and creating more vulnerability so it's um so yeah getting people to care as well is is, is part of it um now it's um it's i think the other the other thing as well which when while you're speaking made me think was this is where the adaptation stories are so important as well because there are others you know we're learning from projects that are happening in other mountainous regions in the world um both the kind of like things that have worked but also things that have gone wrong and and factoring those in but so i think you know the sharing of these these kind of positive and negative stories of adaptation these you know, great adaptations and maladaptations are, are, are really helpful aren't they for kind of working out um what what might what might and might not be a sensible approach and the other thing which you mentioned i think which is really important is the is the um Kind of understanding what we're adapting to and understanding how much climate change is there's going to be and that's obviously you and i work in this all the time but it's but there's so many different stories that people hear, hear about oh we're gonna you know the governments have got it under control and warming is going to going to be at 1.7 or and or they might think oh no it's gonna or then you might hear a story that's going to be 2.9 or 3.5 and 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 I, I can't imagine as a as a kind of a farmer or an agriculturist thinking right well what do I do? Because what am I adapting to? And especially when you've got to think quite long term in a kind of decade length. So it's um it's tricky <laughs> to, to work those things out. Um I'm gonna move on to um the IPCC and, and your work there. Um you're a coordinating lead author of chapter 18 of working group two, um, contributing to the sixth assessment report on on the IP intergovernment panel on climate change. Um so yeah, it'd be great just to understand. Um, obviously, there's, there's there's the different working groups. You don't need to go into all of what they all do, but um, what working group two does, and then if you could tell me a little bit about the kind of the focus of the chapter, that chapter eighteen that you're working on, it'd be it'd be great to hear sort of what it's about and kind of what it's going to say and sort of what, what we can expect. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I can say I can say. I can't say too much about the content of the chapter, except I can tell, of course, what we're covering. But the um, the working of two is the place where we look at the impacts of climate change and also adaptation and vulnerability. The originally, when the IPCC was set up in 1988, the working group two was really intended to look at the impacts primarily because in 1988, adaptation was again not really something that we were interested in. The Climate Change Convention that was negotiated and, and adopted in um, 1992 and then entered into force in 94, that already wasn't considering that we need, would need to ad adapt, right? So this is the IPCC comes before this, of course, being a founding an important uh, kind of foundational um, piece of knowledge for this, for the convention itself. But it's over the course of the last, uh, assessment cycles, in particular the third assessment cycle that, that um, so the third assessment report, that it was identified that adaptation and also vulnerability needed to be part of the story around impacts. So in our report, we have 18 chapters and the there are sectoral chapters that deal with sort of the impacts of climate change and also adaptations in, in for instance, water and um, different kinds of ecosystems. And then we also have, um, oh, sorry, and I should say also cities, so urban, urban, um, 
And then we also have a series of chapters that cover the regions around the world. So, so in the same regions are always covered. I mean, sort of the UN uh, regions. So those chapters also look at kind of region specific types of impacts of adaptation strategies and vulnerability dimensions. Then the end of the report is three chapters that attempt to provide a synthesis for, for looking across all of these things. And my chapter is the final one that looks at climate resilient development pathways to say, well, adaptation uh, is clearly something that we need to do, but it's not sufficient really to get us sort of through this the climate change and that we need to think even more kind of, um, I guess, uh, we need to think more holistically about how adaptation and mitigation and also development interrelate. Yeah. And so climate resilient development is, is the notion of, of you know, how, to, how to kind of combine all these things towards uh, the next type of development pathways. And in the IPCC, we, we don't do research, we assess existing mm -hmm. knowledge. So we, we assess the science that has been published uh, since the fifth assessment report. So what do we know about adaptation in these regions, for instance, what are the new things that have come out and, uh, and try to um, then also kind of, you know, think about what does that mean in the context also of the working group one report as well as the, uh, so on the science basis, but also the, the three special reports that came out starting in yeah. 2018. So it's a kind of, we're sort of building on uh, published knowledge, we're building on this sort of existing assessments as well and trying to kind of add more <laughs> value to that as well. Uh, so yeah, and it's the collection of authors are from all over the world and Working Group 2 has the most chapters of all the three and I, I believe also then the most authors, but I'm not entirely sure if that's correct. But, but in any case, we're a very diverse group coming from lots of different disciplines uh, from sort of, you know, ecologists to people like me in development studies. Um, yeah. And, you know, just because of the different, it's quite a broad, uh, it's, we cover such a broad, broad topic. So we need mm -hmm. to kind of have all these different perspectives. And has it got, has, has it got broader over the, you know, over the, over the cycle? So we're at the six one now, because we just discussed earlier about the kind of how, how, you know, what, what are the parameters around what adaptation is? Um, but yeah, has, has it got broader? Yeah, absolutely. And I would still argue that there's not enough um, social science. And it's also very difficult to have critical social science, like critical scientists, critical, particular critical social science uh, be integrated. And um, because it, it's still, the, you know, we still have our client or the governments who are the intergovernmental yeah. panel on climate change. And they have... Um, they have told us that we must not be policy prescriptive. And so that means that we're not allowed to give any suggestions for the types of strategies that we think should be implemented, but rather we need to look at what the science says and say, you know, these things work here, these things work here. And the governments will make the decisions about what seems to be uh, appropriate for them or relevant for them. But it's challenging to be a critical social scientist then because our, our kind of, our reason for being is to be critical and to kind of say, well, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, but very often to propose an alternative also that that may be sort of more based in kind of what we are or what we think sort of very normative and sort of what, what we think should be 
Um, so it's hard, to, it's, a, it's a huge challenge to park that at the door. And that I think is, is something that in some ways, um, uh, it, it doesn't prevent engagement from all disciplines, but it certainly constrains engagement. So even though we have a lot of disciplines represented, I think it's, there is still a, a tendency to go towards a bit more of the kind of uh, positivist sort of, of narr narrative or kind of try to be more, um, a little bit, bit simpler also to, so a little bit reductionist in order to make sure that we can actually provide a clear message. Um, and yeah, so one could discuss that, but I think <laughs> at the end of the day, we want the decision makers to understand what we're saying. So obviously just suggesting that there's lots and lots of options without giving them any way of understanding how to, how to evaluate them is uh, it's probably not a good idea, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. I imagine it's a, um, and, and I think you, I guess, as I understand it, there's, there's what you write and then it goes through several drafts and then the kind of government representatives will read it and they'll critique it as well and sort of I guess probably down to the comma and the full stop and and, and all that that sort of level of what what they're comfortable sort of saying and not saying and there's been yeah there's always and there's always kind of leaks and rumors of what what's going to be in it and and how sort of radical or revolutionary it might it might be in terms of what it's asking for and we've definitely seen some of the, the more recent IPCC reports have have been, you know, from my perspective, pushing things a bit harder and and sort of really kind of showing that we're you know we're getting very close to the point where you know we're on the brink and things things and it might be that we've because of the delay and the delay and delay then you know the there's kind of no 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 non radical options left it's going to go one way or the other and um, we have to kind of get that so yeah I can understand it must be you must feel sometimes like one of your hands tied behind your back when you're writing that stuff. Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think the, the key is what's nice to see is that the, the big difference, it, apart from the fact that we also have more disciplinary perspectives, is there are so many different disciplines working on this. Like, you know, you, especially adaptation, you have people working in the governance space, you have the law journals picking up adaptation, you have the, you know, all over across to much more like infrastructure and that sort of thing in engineering. And then you have um, you know, more like even cultural geography or philosophy. So, I mean, it really, it means that there's, there is a huge amount more knowledge on adaptation. And I think, you know, and of course that requires a, a diverse group of people to assess the, the, the literature. But uh, what we can say as a consequence of all these different perspectives is that we have much more certainty about things. A lot of things we, we, we know better. And that's certainly the case also for the climate science. They haven't, they have far more certainty now about what's happening. And I think mm -hmm. in our case, it's the volume of knowledge that's available is just kind of, it's overwhelmingly showing, you know, that adaptation needs, needs to be couched in this sort of, or yeah, rooted, I guess, in, in, in understanding vulnerability, it needs to be rooted in understanding equity dimensions because it doesn't seem to work otherwise. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, but still, those are concepts that can be a little bit tricky to convey, especially given that we're talking about the whole world and, you know, the, the entire, yeah. all the countries of the world are our audience. Um, so we need to think carefully about where, you know, how to connect that with 
the kind of the decision making process as well because what can they say what can what can a decision maker use that information for i mean they, they're really looking for very clear guidance and if you just make kind of big statements about oh you know think about equity without being specific um, and you can't be extreme you can't be too specific either <laughs> so you have to kind of you have to yeah so that's that's the dance um but i think and i should also say that the, the leaks are a bit silly to me because actually all of this knowledge is already published like you, you yeah know. yeah so it's not like we're it's not like there's anything tremendously new it's just the way that we are seeing it from much more of a i guess it's like the, the bigger perspective and stay taking that step back and seeing wow look at all this knowledge on this specific topic it's clearly showing this and that's not something you would see from just reading individual papers no that's it and it's all about creation of the kind of the narrative around it isn't it and kind of i guess from what you're saying it's it's kind of a I guess it's an incremental process of reframing what adaptation is and 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 how we need to think about it and the boundaries of it and and that is going to take it into areas of conversation which have huge kind of political sensitivity because we're starting to talk about you know economic growth paradigms that that people want to follow or not follow and you know and that's that is it's it's hard to escape that that, that it's hard to escape those conclusions that you know it's we can't we can't just go on with this incremental adaptation within a system which isn't really changing it's you know the what we're seeing is that when systems change then adaptation becomes more possible because people are less vulnerable therefore they're more able to adapt and so it's um yeah that's um i mean it's it's just they're always so interesting to read and it's always so interesting to read the commentary around them as well and how, and how people are interpreting them <laughs> and um it's always um so look when when does it come out the um the actual report the working group two report should be released at the end of february if all okay. goes as planned so it's pretty close now <laughs> yeah final sprint and i really mean sprint <laughs> it's yeah still a lot of work yeah good stuff well i look forward to it um so just to um just to kind of finish up um there's obviously we're we're in a situation where we recognize that you know kind of big changes is needed or big changes coming and we're just going to have something we're at this kind of inflection point i think in in history and you know we want you know the glacier trust wants fair and just development um you know and we want that to be happening while the climate is changing and so we want you know we're we're not sort of um naive enough to think that well we're suddenly going to solve climate change in the, in the next decade and then we can just get on with development after that we recognize that the climate is changing it will go on changing through the rest of my lifetime probably through the rest of my son's lifetime and um but we want a fair and just world to be sort of coming about so are you are you hopeful that um that you know we can have this fair and just world um you know in the context of a changing climate i think over the last year i have become more hopeful because i feel like there are a lot more voices that are joining in to to sort of talk about this and it, it it's really uh, it's very encouraging to see the the sort of recognition of the links between you know it, climate justice is critical it's a, it's typically more thought around as mitigation you know the, um, reducing greenhouse gases and that sort of climate justice through just transitions uh, and 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 it's just equitable sort of recognition that developed countries have not contributed the same amount of greenhouse gas emissions as developing 
sorry, developed, <laughs> developed countries are the ones that have contributed the most emissions and developing countries are the ones that are experiencing the most significant impacts. Uh, so, but what's nice to see is that this sort of this, the rhetoric around climate justice has broadened and that there's a recognition that climate justice is actually social justice and the social justice, it, it extends into all sorts of spheres that are sort of through to kind of, um, you know, the decolonization uh, discussions and Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter movement. And, and so I think, uh, you know, that sort of acknowledgement of the, 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 that it's it, it needs to be inclusive and I mean inclusive in like the really in the sense of like everybody needs to be involved but also all the, the issues need to be considered but actually that we can also manage to address a lot of these issues that by addressing things around um, sort of um, race issues and, and, and anti-racism we're actually also contributing to addressing things around climate change because yeah. Um, they, the, the way that people are marginalized and the way that people are, are made more vulnerable to climate change has to do with things like racism. And so, yeah. you know, I think that, I guess that's, it, I am excited about that because I feel like we're kind of starting to, to connect, like hold hands around mm -hmm. the world on these issues. And eventually they, that message will be so strong that, that governments can't, can't avoid it. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm just going to say that because I think that that is the part that makes me feel um, optimistic. Yeah, and me, and think it's I think the the new kind of emerging generation of young people who are who are engaging with this are really intersectional in their thinking, and they're re they're really connecting. They're just as likely to be part of the Black Lives Matter movement as they are to be part of the climate movement, and that wasn't the case when I was in my twenties. And and I think it's I think it's it's a recognition that climate change is, is a symptom of, some, of, an, of a broader problem. And yeah, racism is, is a symptom of that same broader problem. So people are starting to see that um, there's root problems that need to be addressed and that if we address them, um, it can have positive impacts across the board on lots of different um, kind of cause, causes that people care about. Um, and it's more efficient, eh? It's better to do that than to try and fix every problem in isolation while not while not sort of while ignoring or kind of the, the, the root of the problem. So I think, yeah, I'm kind of hopeful like you that um, that, that is emerging. And I think it's, you know, our education system has such an important role to play in helping young people to, to, to do that systems thinking, that critical thinking, and, and to join those dots and to not be kind of boxed into different topics when they're in school and they're in sixth form when they're in university and I think that's that's um that's the shift which I mean there's people working against trying to prevent that from happening and quite happy with people to be in boxes and specialisms but I think um people are bursting out of them and I think the communications technology that we have and the access to information is is kind of an unstoppable wave really which which kind of makes it very hard to control information and to stop people from sort of joining those dots up um although it can be overwhelming <laughs> the amount of stuff that's out there yeah um, and counterproductive also in the sense mm. that all the misinformation and the sort of yeah. you know and it, it's also i think the the questions around um uh gender identity that it seem maybe like they would have nothing to do with this but this 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 uh, it is partly that process is showing that people shouldn't be put in boxes that gender is a mm. constraining kind of concept in a social construct and that that um you know but then you see that it's even for people just to talk about those things in social media or in public it, there's so much backlash and i think that mm. that you know that intimidates them and 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 makes it really kind of yeah 
so to, to sort of erase some of these these issues that do do need to come out um, to strengthen this notion that hang on we shouldn't put people in boxes in you know in, in from a range in a range of issues. So yeah, I think we there is a negative side to it, but hopefully it's the the positive side is that we connect with each other through these <laughs> yeah. through social media, I guess. Definitely, um, brilliant. So um, once you've done the um, the final sprint of the working group two report, um, which I guess is going to be hopefully <laughs> won't consume you too much in the next couple of months, especially uh, over the. Uh, festive period um but what's next for you what's 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 coming next in in your kind of work life um and yeah anything that you're doing at a kind of voluntary capacity as well i'd be interested to know and um yeah what's um what's on the agenda for you in 2022 um yes <laughs> lots of voluntary things i guess <laughs> um well i mean over the course of the last two years it's become clear that there is a huge thirst for more of this critical thinking around adaptation and it's a little bit embarrassing for me because I wrote my PhD thesis, I finished, it was done in 2004 on the need to kind of rethink the way that we understand adaptation and development, <laughs> where at that time we actually didn't have that much knowledge on it, but I were proposed like really looking at vulnerability first and come back, you know, fast forward and we're now here and we're seeing, oh, actually it's really we really do need to consider vulnerability, but it's it's there's a need for what's the, over the course of, of this period developed as critical adaptation scholarship, where we look at kind of the, what are the um, kind of the way that we're thinking about adaptation, the way, and I say we, but I mean as a collective, but I, I think that there are certain actors who are thinking about adaptation in a very, um, in, in a way that can more likely lead to maladaptation. So what, uh, with a group of, of other scholars is sort of, it's kind of like we sort of come into this, this um, I don't know, it's like a swirl that's taking us and the energy is, is quite strong to, uh, would made me realize that we need to kind of formalize something that would work around how to try to, to unpack these questions more. And so I'm setting up this research initiative that is going to be kind of trying to bring in all critical adaptation scholars and practitioners to, to try to produce, you know, try to try to answer these questions around, you know, how can we do adaptation better in the context of development and, um, and look, kind of try to write things. And yeah, so it's called the adaptation hive, but it hasn't quite formalized yet. So it's still mm -hmm. a lot of details that are, are unclear. Um, but that's that's sort of what I'm what I want to spend at least the next year and probably for longer on just to try to because I think there's a lot of things that we still don't understand well and that we're not able to communicate well and we just need to kind of work both on the communication of, of making sure people understand the importance of vulnerability but then also making sure that we have good dialogues with development actors to say okay how can we help you make sure that you're planning your projects in, a, in an inclusive way that so that we put vulnerability vulnerability context in the center and work from that basically so that's Brilliant. that's next year and yeah hopefully that sounds great that sounds really good i love i love i mean hive is a, is a good sort of frame as well isn't it for um for, for calling it so um it'll uh bring a lot of <laughs> there'll be a lot of buzziness and a lot of people coming around with different ideas bringing new things in and creating stuff which is um yeah that's that sounds brilliant and um yeah much needed like you say to um to get into those conversations i think um well hopefully it will be something that, that place your trust will be find a way to engage with and to help 
help promote and, and to, um, to, to spread the word about it. We'll try to do that. Um, brilliant. And so, yeah, and that, so there's, so there's that. And there's, is there anything in the kind of academic research which you're going to be working on or what's happening well, there? Yeah, so connected to that will be some further kind of projects around trying to understand uh, what what could be what are the what, in particular what are the bottlenecks in the decision making process for de development uh, funders when they so when they go to plan these projects what are the places that that might be seen as bottlenecks where you could end up having problems that would then lead to kind of the adaptation and vulnerability mm -hmm. getting lost a little bit in translation. Um, and also having a more closer look at uh, portfolios of projects to see if we can assess if sort of there are any maladaptive risks there. And so that that's there's some some work that's coming up. But uh, in general, I mean, continue to, to try to write on this. And I have a couple of papers that are sitting in my brain that need to come <laughs> out on paper. Um, and also, actually, I should say, hopefully an updated version of the adaptation reader that came out oh, yeah. a long time ago now, 2009, uh, with Ian Burton. And that is going to be a different type of book because readers are no longer things that publishers want to publish. <laughs> so <laughs> it's going to be more of new content, but reflecting on the past knowledge on adaptation. So uh, inviting some of the authors who wrote original sort of things in, in the 90s and 2000s to reflect on how those those kinds of ideas have have traveled since then and yeah. also to do a couple of interviews with people uh who have been involved in the space for a long time and include parts of excerpts of transcript of, of those interviews in the book and that sort of thing so that's also hopefully coming next year great <laughs> um, Excellent yeah. stuff that sounds good and um where can people um follow what you're doing and and sort of hear more from you well, uh, I guess Twitter is the best way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I guess it's shipper underscore Lisa is my Twitter handle. But I'm hopefully the Adaptation Hive will also have its uh, Twitter and website where we're sort of going to use it to put a lot of, of papers and references and things on there. So it's kind of like a, a space to look for critical adaptation scholarship and um that will be another place. But again, it's still in development, so that probably won't be active until maybe the second half of next year, I would expect. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll include some links which are worth including in the in the, in the show notes for, so people can find you. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much um, again, Lisa, for your time and for yeah, for having this conversation. It's really I've learned loads and it's it's really good to kind of um yeah, I feel I, I've, I'm going away feeling pretty hopeful that there's um good stuff happening and that um you know people are you know the, the joining of the dots i think is is really encouraging to hear and, and the adaptation hive sounds like it will continue to help people to do that which is which is really great so th thanks so much um for joining me lisa yeah thanks morgan It was so great to speak to Lisa. She has such a deep appreciation of the subject area and all its complexities, but she's also such a capable um, communicator when it comes to talking about the potential of adaptation, but also the pitfalls of maladaptation. She's a true sort of systems thinker. Um, she really understands the need for the social sciences to be part of this conversation and why we need to put adaptation in the context of broader agendas of justice, development, mitigation and inequality. The biggest takeaway for me from the conversation, especially listening to what she was saying about the 
amount of resources that have been drawn on for the upcoming IPCC reports was that we're on the brink of a surge of interest in adaptation, a surge of research. So many people are beginning to engage with it and they're doing it from all sorts of different angles. There's going to be an absolute explosion of action when it comes to adaptation this decade. And the key thing is that it's done in mindful ways, in great ways, and we need to avoid the really damaging and counterproductive maladaptations that might happen if we don't think and plan through those adaptation projects properly. But those maladaptations, they're avoidable. And it's by tapping into the wisdom of people like Lisa that we can help to avoid them and we can avoid the sorts of collateral damage that's always dogging well-meaning but poorly planned or poorly executed attempts um, to adapt to the changes that climate change is bringing. So thank yous. Thank you firstly, of course, to Lisa um, for her time and for having that conversation. It was really brilliant to talk to her and um, I highly recommend following her on Twitter. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes and also a link to the Adaptation Hive, which will be landing later this year, which is sure to be a great resource and a great place to find um, this sort of intersectional um, perspective on on adaptation and probably on climate change more broadly. Thank you to the Glacier Trust, the trustees, the volunteers, the project partners, everybody who supports what we do. Um, Thank you to Hannah Ahmed and to Susie Harrison for the artwork um, that goes along with the Great Adaptations Project. Thanks to Amity for allowing us to use their wonderful track um, at the beginning and end of the show. Um, Thank you to Arcbound and to Ellie Donovan for the work they've done to promote um, the Great Adaptations book. Thank you to Wiper and True for the brilliant Great Adaptations beer, which hopefully is still available if you're listening to this um, just after we've released it. And thank you um, to you for listening. It's um, This is our fourth episode. We've been really happy with the response we've had so far. We we're planning to do a few more um, to end this season. And who knows, we might be back later in the year for a second season. So for now, um, I hope you enjoyed listening to Lisa Shipper. Um, and please rate and review and share this podcast Um, on all your social media channels and we hope to see you next time on the Great Adaptations podcast. Great Adaptations is a podcast, a book and now thanks to our friends at the Wiper and True Brewery, a beer. You can find out more information about this unique collaboration and how to order at theglaciertrust.org forward slash beer.